Welcome to Cato Audio for November 2016. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's offering, law professor James Duane discusses why you should never talk to the police. Josh Blackman explains how Obamacare has unraveled. Lita Cosmides discusses socialism and human nature. And Clint Bullock of the Arizona Supreme Court talks about the critical role of state constitutions in protecting liberty. First up, this month's Cato Roundtable. Donald Trump in his uh, campaign based on protectionism, based on uh, opposing uh, trade agreements, opposing uh, broad and uh, a welcoming immigration policy, had said at some point during the campaign, I want to make this country great again. This country is a hellhole. We are going down fast. And I'm a conservative, but I have a big heart. I will take care of people. A lot of people want me to run, and we'll see what happens. So uh, those comments about uh, a hellhole and the country is going down fast seem to reflect a, you know, not small part of the American electorate. And to talk about uh, why the world is actually improving quite a bit, we're talking with Johan Norberg. He is author of the new book, Progress. 10 Reasons to Look Forward to the Future, and he's also a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. Johan, welcome. Thank you. So to begin here, uh, Donald Trump and, you know, to a lesser extent, Hillary Clinton, way back in 1992 when Bill Clinton was running for president, they said we had the worst economy in 30 years uh, with uh, George H.W. Bush as president. That's a very enduring message for politicians who are running against the current government, and it sort of presumes that the government is responsible for those things. That's right, and it's a very regular occurrence in any election season that you tell the world that it's it's bad out there, and I, only I can fix things. And especially if the other guy wins, then everything will be awful. The sun will not rise tomorrow, and the water taps will run dry. So we've lived with this for a long time. If you want power, then you have to tell people that it would be awful if they didn't hand you power. Uh, but I think that this season, it's... <laughs> It's, this is one thing that actually gets worse, um, our perception of the world, because now it seems like there's a broad agreement, especially between sort of Trump and the Bernie Sanders crowd, the, the populists, the ones who think that the government has to step in dramatically and, and set things right. They seem to be in agreement that the world is falling apart. America is an oligarchy and everything spirals out of control, inequality to crime, to, to pollution. And that is... Pessimism is a very powerful political force because that's what gives people the impression if things are so bad, then we need a strong man or a big government to correct this. And uh, as news outlets are more than happy to uh, oblige complaints about the world, you know, uh, thousands of planes land safely is not a very attractive headline. That's right. And we, we always hear about the bad, shocking things, the, the things that scares us. And that's because that's what we pay attention to. That's what all my friends in, in the media tells me that, yeah, look, we would like to give another broader perspective of the world and more background, but that doesn't sell. So it seems like this is something that's embedded in human nature, almost a genetical programming, that we pay more attention to bad things 
because uh, historically they could be a threat to our survival. All right. So in your book, uh, Progress, 10 Reasons to Look Forward to the Future, you ha you've broken up these chapters in uh, very interesting ways. So let let's go through a few of these in turn. Um, one of the great untold or unsung or underappreciated stories of the last 50 years is the availability of, of food, of, of world hunger has been in steady, sustained, and fairly dramatic decline over that time period. Why should we expect that trend to continue? Yeah, well, we'll see what happens. But to know what will happen next, we need to understand what happened previously. Um, it used to be that most of mankind lived in a state of fear over their food supply um, because we couldn't produce much, didn't have the technology, didn't have artificial fertilizer, and most people didn't have secure property rights to the land, so they didn't have the incentive to or even the possibility to invest. And uh, I mean, even the richest countries 300 years ago, were, a lot of people were facing what researchers call a nutritional trap. They didn't have enough food so that they could work. And if they couldn't work, they couldn't produce enough food. And they were stuck in that. Then property rights, more trade began to deal with this. In the 20th century, we had the Green Revolution, better crops, artificial fertilizer, more irrigation. And then suddenly we've reduced uh, hunger in around 60 years from 50% of the world population to around 10% today. So that's tremendous progress. And if we keep on doing it in this way. If we give people those opportunities to invest in their land and the freedom to reap the rewards, then that should continue. Now, you wrote another book called In Defense of Global Capitalism, and you detailed a lot of how trade happens and how uh, governments take credit for the improvements in, uh, in conditions around the world. Uh, before we jump into some of these other topics, it's, I think it's important to try to separate out the impacts of the uh, delivery of that market, the, the benefits that markets deliver to people and the benefits that so the so-called aid industry, uh, as we call it in Washington, D.C., deliver to people around the world. Yeah. It's interesting if you separate um, various uh, time periods and control different countries and, and look at it, y you can see that the when it comes to aid, when it comes to official development aid, uh, most often the countries that have been given the most, they've seen the, the worst results. Uh, at the same time, we've had things like the United Nations Millennium Development Goals that talked about how we'd like to reduce poverty by half uh, between 1990 and 2015 and, and other indicators of social um, and healthy standards. And many of those goals have been reached and then they take credit for that. Um, but if you look at what happened before they had those goals and afterwards, uh, you can notice that um, the most of the things did not accelerate after they uh, did that. Those things that did accelerate, uh, the reduction in poverty and so on, they had begun to accelerate before that happened. And the places that made the most progress, uh, like China, they weren't involved at all. They didn't give, they weren't given any kind of development aid like that. The strong correlation is countries that integrated rapidly into the global economy, countries that gave the people more freedom to produce and more freedom to trade internationally, they made the most progress. Now you also cite here uh, poverty, and of course, that's related to, to food. And uh, a lot of these are just related to uh, people rising up out of 
having to walk miles to get enough water for the day repeatedly in some some instances to just have enough of potable water to to survive but sanitation here is a big how has that changed and what has driven it the major thing that has driven everything is um, economic progress and technological innovation, uh, which has given people uh, both more purchasing power, but also has reduced the price of any kind of technology that they need to take care of everything from food production to um, sanitation. And it's interesting if you look at the different mechanisms behind this, the most important factor has not really been uh, an increase in income that's made it more possible for people to buy this, but a dramatic reduction in prices, everyday low prices for good living standards because of technological innovation, because of fierce competition when it comes to developing everything from those tiny components that you need to the transport technology that it takes to, to deal with this thing. And things and sanitation is incredibly important because it used to be historically one of the reasons why people died at an early age, because they didn't separate the places for waste from the places where they picked up water. But everywhere where we've seen the introduction of the basically the globalization, the global economy and an increasing GDP to per capita, people take care of that. And people, they're not dumb. Even in the poorest parts of the world, they're not stupid. They have rank ordered priorities about how they would like to see their lives improve the most uh, and, and the quickest. So where do those, how do those priorities, what do they look like in, 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 a, in a very poor country? That's an incredibly important point because a lot of the attitudes from the West have been sort of neo-colonial and in the development aid industry as well, that they think that people left to their own devices, they'll make bad decisions. So we need some sort of top-down control here. And that's not the case. I mean, I've, I've been to the slums of Africa and what you see is not stupid people or lazy people. They work incredibly hard. It's just that uh, the circumstances are very difficult, especially because of regulation, corruption, protectionism and things like that. But they do this. They work so hard because they want to give their kids a better future. They want to make sure that they can give their parents a more dignified uh, few decades of, uh, of life as well. So they deal with things like um, pollution close by, sanitation, safe water the moment they get the chance to do this. Um, an interesting instance is uh, where I think that perceptions are beginning to change is child labor. It used to be said that we have to ban child labor, the government has to step in because parents, they want to maximize the family income. So they'll always uh, try to get their kids to work hard. So, for example, if the economy is growing and if there are exports opportunities, they'll put children more often to work because that will maximize income. But that is not what happens. What happens is instead, the moment they begin to open up their economy, the moment their parents get a job in the exports industry, for example, in a country like Vietnam or India, they take their children out of the workforce immediately, even though short term they would benefit economically, materially from keeping them in, in the uh, job sector. Uh, because apparently they only put them to work because they needed the food they needed their income to survive, to put food on the table. The moment they get those resources anywhere else, they take kids out of the workforce, put them into education, and thereby maximize their life opportunities and their lifetime income. And James Tooley has made that argument very well in his uh, various studies of uh, education, even for even among the very poor, providing uh, private education for their own children. I visited uh, Vietnam 
and Cambodia and Hong Kong last year, and it's interesting to watch three places on Earth in three pretty different spots. Uh, Vietnam is is growing. It's very it's a bustling uh, city, and uh, where I, whereas I visit Cambodia, the scooter repair shop is also a convenience store, is also a laundry, is also maybe a daycare center, and it, it's interesting to watch how in places like Hong Kong, well, they're just selling you a very specific uh, item or they're, they're just providing a very specific kind of business. So to watch countries move through those stages of specialization is, is fascinating. So how does that improve people's lives, that kind of specialization? Yeah, you, you can't be too specialized if the economy is uh, suffering from too many transaction costs, too much of corruption, uh, lack of rule of law, lack of uh, an open market. Because in that case, you can't trust people, you can't trust the contract. So you have to do all of the things yourself. And it might be that the um, when the moment uh, when this begins to change, the material level rises, we have more of economic freedom in a place. You can begin to specialize more, more like that, and trade is more, more of a, a, a opportunity as well. Well, what happens is really that you use more knowledge in society, because in if you have subsistence agriculture and you're trying to do everything yourself, including all the repairs, you, and you double as a small grocery store and so on, you have to have the knowledge about all those things. You have to do all those things yourself, and basically everybody else does as well. So everybody gets the same kind of knowledge. The fascinating thing with special, specialization is that then you can focus completely on repairs, you could, or you can focus completely on um, this specific crop or producing this particular item. And in that case, you can devote much more time, much more energy, and much more resources to develop the skills, to develop the tools, to develop the machinery, to do those things. And if more people do that, they can all produce much more, and then they can exchange, and they'll all be richer. And those kinds of decisions, those kinds of uh, longer-term investments, which I would include uh, getting your child a quality education would, would count as one of those investments. That all hinges on your ability to feel secure in making those kinds of decisions. Right. Exactly. So, yep. so how, how does, what are some, give me some examples of how countries differ along the security uh, of knowing that a kind of decision that they might make, a kind of wager, a kind of investment that they might make it, it will pay off. Yeah. Well, you have at one extreme end, you have uh, war-torn countries where you don't know whether your land will be run over by invaders tomorrow. Well, in that case, you do not take those long-term decisions in building things, in improving the land, in building an irrigation system or anything like that. You try to get whatever you, you can just right now. Um, but it could be a country at peace, but it could be that the government is making war on the economy by not having decent rule of law, by not uh, recognizing property rights and so on. And many of these African countries, we have that problem in agriculture. Um, if you're successful, if you improve the land, if you produce more, well, then the nephew of some important guy comes there and tells you, this is not your land. You're, you don't have the anything in the land register that tells us that this is your land. So as those institutions evolve, as 
we get more of rule of law, protection of property rights and secure contracts and so on, then people can begin to think long term. Many of the cultural um, prejudices that we have about how people think short term, they do not think of the future, they just live for the moment. Well, they're very much tied to the kind of government that those countries have. Uh, they don't think short term because they're they are short-termists because they're stupid or anything like that. They do it because that's their only way to put food on the table. If they knew that the investment could pay off 10 years from now, that their children would have a better life, well, then they start to do that. I think Brink Lindsay uh, here at the Cato Institute talked about this in, in his book, Against the Dead Hand, of how uh, some sectors in some countries were deregulated and boomed, like in the tech sector in, in India, it boomed. But for the average person, of the, for a poor person in India, the laws were still very onerous. And so the investments that those kinds of people were able to make to support themselves were almost always short term because they couldn't count on the law to actually uh, protect the investments that they had made. So they end up being street vendors in many cases, and their entire inventory is uh, on a cart. So uh, right. what are some of the other uh, things that people really need to think about when it comes to the world is improving, don't worry so much? I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it may be easy. It's, it's almost a luxury for Americans, I think, to complain about how the United States is going when there are uh, billions of people around the world who would love to trade places with them. Right. And I mean, it's a, almost a philosophical question whether that improves our um, our well-being, our happiness. Uh, but uh, to paraphrase uh, the classic statement, I'd rather uh, cry in with a 70-year life expectancy and good, decent health care and with long-term um, education available than in desperately poor circumstances. Uh, the major thing that has changed and I think summarizes many of the, the changes around the world recently is poverty, extreme poverty. In the last 25 years, while we've been complaining, uh, while the left has been talking about how neoliberalism has sort of ravaged, uh, aggressive capitalism has taken over more countries, why, well, under that period, uh, extreme poverty, as being able to consume for less than $1.9 adjusted for inflation and local uh, purchasing power, that has been reduced from 37% to around 9% today. So despite a population growth of 2 billion around the world, which means that poverty should have grown, we've seen a reduction for the first time in world history, a reduction in the absolute number of extremely poor people by some 1.25 billion. So every minute that we talk here, um, another 100 people rise out of poverty. One of the chapters of your book here, one of the reasons to look forward to the future is the next generation. And uh, I know a lot of people who do not have a great deal of faith in the next generation. I am of a mixed opinion on that. So why should I be looking forward to the next generation? Well, we always think that the next generation is the, uh, the worst generation so far. Uh, that has always been the case. That's what our parents thought about us as well. And this is a something that has been the case throughout history. The cultural historian Arthur Herman put it like um, every generation has thought that the, the next generation is not up to the standards of their parents and forebears. And I think that that's partly a result of us noticing that they do not pay as much attention to the things that we thought were the most important things 
Uh, could be that they have other priorities. Could be that we solve particular problems. They take that for granted. But they do pay more attention to other new things. And they create fantastic new innovations and new expressions of culture and so on. But that's nothing that we think about so far as, as terribly important or, or interesting. It could even be that we feel threatened by it. But I think that history will judge them a bit more optimistically. The things that makes us me think that they have great potential is that they have more freedom than any other generation. They'll get a longer education than any other generation, almost uh, as long uh, in some cases as the uh, average lifespan was 200 years ago around the world. And they're also able to use the accumulated knowledge from all previous generations and to compare notes on everything. So they have those opportunities. They can stand on the shoulders of giants, and uh, but then attack problems with their creativity. So this is this is part of the reasons why I'm I'm optimistic about the world, because I think even the problems we have no idea how to tackle today, I think we'll be lucky, not just because sort of happy-go-lucky, but because we're building institutions for being lucky, because we have more eyeballs than ever looking at the problems with more brain power than ever uh, when they attack those problems. And so far, at least, more freedom to implement and experiment with new ideas to solve those problems. Uh, trade is often couched as uh, winners and losers and uh, is couched as a zero-sum game. Donald Trump has uh, probably been the biggest exemplar of that idea in recent memory. But, you know, for the, for the United States, there appear to be losers from trade. Uh, it's not cl clear how many of those were uh, job losses were from technology versus uh, shifting production to a lower wage country. But what uh, comfort can you provide to the people who have lost because of uh, you know globalization? I think the trade is one of the most progressive factors around the world. And we can see an incredibly strong correlation between all those indicators of, of social and economic standards and the openness to trade in particular countries. There are losers. There are always losers. Uh, those companies that produced something old things in old ways and therefore at a worse quality or at a higher price than others, they will lose out and so people will lose their jobs. And I think that's one of the data points that has made a lot of people worried recently is that it seems like imports from China has um, perhaps in, in directly and indirectly um, cost America around 2 million jobs. And that's true and that hurts when that happens. But America is a place where 5 million jobs are lost every month and 5 million jobs are created every month. Um, so it's not that big a tragedy, really. The tragedy is if we cannot create more new jobs, if we're not innovative enough uh, to do that. And I think the trade helps us do that. Uh, it creates also better jobs because export jobs pay more than, than jobs in the domestic sector. Um, when you look at that, the, the cost benefits of, of uh, gains and losses, it seems like uh, there's a 20 to 1 uh, uh, ratio between gains and losses in the American economy. In other words, it's trade has helped tremendously. But those losses are concentrated. You can see those jobs. You can see those factory closures. Whereas the benefits, they end up in all over the economy. It ends up in 
cheaper, lower prices, uh, better purchasing power, uh, especially for the poor. Um, a recent study showed that the um, the richest 10%, they would only lose something like uh, 10% of their purchasing power without international trade. But the poorest 10%, they would lose 60% of their purchasing power without international trade because they consume more goods that are produced in other places. But that also results in new jobs because that increased purchasing power means that people can afford to buy new things, higher technology things, um, education services, healthcare services, and so on. But you will never ever connect those jobs with the fact that we opened up to more trade. And that's the problem in communicating the benefits of free trade. You see the losses, you do not see the gains. Governments not only uh, like to, I should say politicians, uh, like to blame the party in power for uh, the problems associated with uh, in, the, in the United States and probably in other countries around the world, but they also like to take credit for all good things. And that's sort of, uh, it's two sides of the same coin, really, where people are expected or it is hoped that they will place their hopes in some grand system of uh, people who are intending to fix problems. And if we take them at their word, well, let's assume, let's assume that they are trying to fix those problems. But how much control and how much of the, of the growth and progress that we've seen around the world in the past three, four decades, have politicians had any involvement in? Yeah. Well, the, it, it's an interesting uh, case because I think this is exactly why globalization and, and, and the market is everybody's whipping boy in a way. Because whenever things, whenever progress is there. Someone is always there to take credit for it and tell them that, look, this is because of what I did in power. Whereas when things go wrong, it's always those strange factors and those external factors uh, and the market and foreign countries and so on. Um, politicians can do things. Governments can do things to um, open up new markets, to open up for new technologies, and they can also block it. And then with we see less progress. Um, but overall, the thing that creates progress, that's, that's individuals are allowed to experiment. That's entrepreneurs who create new business models. That's new technologies. And we can see this because we can see an interesting correlation around the world. The, the kind of social and economic progress that takes place in a country is, it's correlated, obviously, with a kind of uh, sort of increasing growth in that country, but it's actually even more correlated with overall global growth and global progress. The, the main um, factor behind improvement in our living standards is an improvement in living standards in other places because it is difficult to invent the internet or um, antibiotics or the cell phone or something like that. But when we have it, at least if the world is fairly open, it's easy to use this everywhere. So uh, if we're integrated into the global economy, we'll, we benefit tremendously from the progress that takes place in other parts of the world, no matter what our politicians do. All right. Johan Norberg is author of Progress, 10 Reasons to Look Forward to the Future. He is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. You can watch a lengthier discussion of this book at our website, cato.org. Never talk to the police. 
That's the advice that law professor James Duane gave in a viral video in 2008. Now Duane has translated that advice into a new book, You Have the Right to Remain Innocent. In the book, he details the advice that lawyers and police give to their own children if they have a run-in with the law. He spoke at the Cato Institute in September. I've been all over the country talking to thousands of young people in the past five years about this subject. Everywhere I go, without exception, I ask every audience, anybody here have a mom or a dad who's a police officer or a prosecutor? There's always one or two. I ask them every time, what do your parents tell you about the Fifth Amendment? Every time, no exception. 100% of them say they said the same thing. They told me when I was a young kid, very young, don't ever talk to the police. Don't ever agree to talk to them. If the police say, can I ask you a couple of questions? You say no. That's why the subtitle of this book is what police officers tell their own children about the Fifth Amendment. The most common question I get in email, I get this one all the time, what about traffic stops? Is it okay if I talk to a police officer during the course of a routine traffic stop? Yes. All right, let's just get that out of the way quickly. <laughs> At the risk of stating what ought to be obvious, that is completely different in a hundred obvious ways, not the least of which is the fact that the police officers have virtually unbridled discretion to let you off with a warning this time and to let you go without giving you a ticket if, they seems, if it seems to them that you're not a public menace, that you aren't drunk, that you are uh, suitably respectful and courteous. And that's not going to happen with a murder investigation. They're not going to let you off because you seem to be really sorry for what you have done. <laughs> but I will, give you this, I will give you this one little bit of free legal advice. When you do get stopped and pulled over by the police, you shouldn't talk any more than necessary. Don't allow them to get you in a conversation about whether you, what you did wrong or whether you know what you did wrong. Just tell them, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to do anything wrong. I didn't mean to violate the law. And if I did, I appreciate you bringing it to my attention, officer. If they suspect that you have been driving while intoxicated and they ask you, if you could recite the alphabet backwards. You don't get into a long conversation or an argument of any sort. Just say this. Just say Z-Y-X-W-V-U-T-S-R-Q-P-O-N-M-L-K-G-I-S-G-F-E-D-C-B-A. And then you say, now, officer, I need to ask you if you can do that in two seconds. Because I need to warn you if you can, I'm putting you under a sentence arrest, and I'll need to ask you to keep your hands where I can see them at all times. Now, let me quickly summarize for you the main points that you'll be able to get out of this book if you buy the book and if you read it. I don't have time, I'm sorry to say, to give you all the details and everything that's in the book, but maybe that's good because then you wouldn't buy it. But here are the most important points behind the book. There are three. Number one, the reason I'm writing this book is to make sure that everybody who reads the book will come to understand that the Fifth Amendment is just as precious, just as valuable for innocent people as it is for the guilty. And once upon a time, this was well known, once upon a time at least, among the educated 50 years ago, the U.S. Supreme Court handed down about a dozen different opinions in which they reaffirmed again and again and again that there's nothing terribly incriminating about the fact that someone chooses to exercise the fifth, that innocent people, perhaps even more than the guilty, have ample reason, numerous reasons to assert the Fifth Amendment. And therefore, no particularly probative inferences either way can be drawn from the fact that somebody chose to remain silent. To those who understand how the system really works, the fact that somebody chose not to talk to the police is no more reliable evidence of guilt than the fact that and he also asked for breakfast every morning while he was in custody, just like all the guilty people do. Yeah, sure they do, but so do the innocent. Number two, you have no idea Unless you've got at least 20 years of experience in the criminal justice system in America today, you have no idea how many different ways there are in which you can get yourself convicted of some crime that you did not commit. Or worse yet, perhaps some crime you never even heard of or ever in your wildest dream would ever imagine could be a crime just by talking to the police. And number three, you will not believe. And I dare say most readers of the book will be literally astounded at how complicated and how hazardous it has become now in recent years, in just the last three years, for you to exercise the Fifth Amendment. Next question. Who needs to read this book? Well, there are two groups of individuals. You're wondering, am I the guy who needs to read this book? Well, yes, you are, absolutely, without a doubt. There are two groups of individuals who absolutely need to read this book. 
and they need to read it before it's too late. The first group is potential criminal suspects. Not necessarily guilty, guilty or innocent. If there's any possibility that someday, perhaps soon, perhaps in the distant future, perhaps when you least expect it, the police may find themselves in possession of evidence that persuades them maybe you were involved in or know something about a crime. Maybe it was a crime you never heard of, which is not unlikely, which is not unusual. The, the federal government today has over 10,000 criminal statutes on the books when you count all the tens of thousands of criminal federal regulations that are incorporated by reference into the terms of the US Penal Code. And how, who, who is that, by the way? Who, who in this room is somebody who might someday be a potential criminal suspect? Of course, the answer is everybody. And you can't comfort yourself with the assurance that, well, I know in my heart I'll never do anything wrong. That doesn't matter. Maybe some mistaken or confused, but sincere and credible sounding eyewitness might mistakenly identify you as somebody who was there. Maybe you were there at the scene. Doesn't mean you were involved, but you're one of the leads. You may be the only lead that they've got. If you are a potential criminal suspect, you need to read this book. Or if any of your children might someday become a criminal suspect, they need to read this book before they are taken into custody. Or before, more likely, the police don't take them into custody, but simply say, you might come down to the office on a voluntary basis, down to the station. You're not under arrest. It's strictly voluntary. You can leave at any time. They like to say this to your kids, to deceive them, to get the kid's guard down. Sometimes it's grotesquely deceptive, because sometimes they won't tell the kid that the truth is we've already got a pretty solid identification of you as the suspect from a witness who may be mistaken, but the police don't know that. And they already know that no matter how this interview ends, your kid will be put in handcuffs and he will be taken away and put in jail. But they don't tell the kid that because they're hoping first we can get him to voluntarily cooperate, waive his rights and talk to us. And we don't have to give him the Miranda warnings if he's not technically in custody. At that point, your kid won't know anything about what's going down because you won't have time to get a hold of him and you won't have time to put this book in his hands. And if you call the police office and say, you mind if I talk to the kid, they'll lie to you and they'll say, no, we can't arrange that, which is a lie because they could if they wanted, they just won't. And if the kid says, uh, is it okay if I uh, get a lawyer? Can I maybe get a lawyer? Very often they'll lie and say, no, we don't need that. We don't want that. You don't want that, which is a lie because a lawyer could be arranged if they want to do that for you. The other group of individuals who really needs to read this book is everybody in this room or in this audience who might someday find themselves in a jury. Potential jurors need to be able to read this book and you need to read it before it's too late so that you can explain to the other members of the jury. If somebody back there in the jury room is trying to insinuate, boy, you notice that guy, he didn't testify at the trial. I guess that's pretty clear indication that he probably did it. No, absolutely not. As I mentioned in the book, one important study of over 100 people who were exonerated after they had been falsely convicted of something they did not do revealed that almost half of them, approximately 40% of them, didn't testify at their trial. And these are people that we now know were, in fact, absolutely innocent. So if you find yourself, you might be in either one of those groups, you need to read this book. And almost every one of us could, of course, be in group number two, any one of us could someday become a member of a jury, unless, of course, perhaps you have a felony conviction, then you probably won't be in a jury. But if you have a felony conviction, you're twice as likely to find yourself in group number one. So either way, you've got to read the book. <laughs> Next question I frequently get, I often get this one. Well, if I take the fifth, though, won't that look suspicious? Won't the police think that I look guilty if I take the fifth? Good news, the answer is no, emphatically no. Absolutely not. You will not look guilty to the police. And why do I say that? Because the police know from years of experience that, truth be told, most suspects probably are guilty, and most guilty criminals are not that, not that smart. Some of them are stupid, and most stupid people waive the right to remain silent. Okay, so if you want to look like a guilty person, you want to open your mouth and start talking. Talk if need be for 8, 10, 12 hours. That's what guilty people usually do. You see, it's absolutely false to suppose that there's two groups of people out there. There's the guilty ones who keep quiet, and the smart ones, I'm sorry, the innocent ones uh, who talk. That's what most laymen mistakenly suppose, but that's not true, and the police know that it's not true. No, the reality is there's two groups of individuals out there. There are those who are sophisticated enough to understand how the American criminal justice system works. This includes, by the way, every defense attorney, every prosecutor, every police officer, every judge, and all of their children and nieces and nephews. Those people never talk to the police, period. 
And then there's this other group that waives the right to remain silent and does talk. And that group includes a lot of guilty people and a lot of innocent people. But all they have in common is that they don't know how the system works. But although the police won't think you look guilty, they will pretend that they think that. The Affordable Care Act, known as Obamacare, was a large expansion of executive branch authority in the health care sector. But much of the expansion of power in the law came not from the law itself, but from the regulations and interpretations of executive agencies. In his new book, Unraveled, Obamacare, Religious Liberty and Executive Power, Josh Blackman provides a portrait of the past, present and future of the health care law. He spoke at the Cato Institute in September. We are only three years into the Affordable Care Act exchanges, and it's frankly stunning how the best laid plans of the Obamacare central planners have utterly failed. I think this law, perhaps more than any other, proves what Hayek, after whom this auditorium is named after, referred to as a fatal conceit. The arrogance of people like Jonathan Gruber and others who thought they tweaked the market just right with the right level of subsidies and the right level of mandates and the right level of regulations everything would magically work. And it frankly hasn't. To give you a sense, the government predicted that roughly 20 million people will be signing up on the ACA exchanges. The actual number is closer to 10. They predicted that there would be a diverse blend of young and old people alike. Young people haven't found the mandate big enough to work. The idea was if enough people sign up, there would be a diversity of insurers here. In many counties throughout the United States, we are down to a single Ensure. This is not an accident. This is a reflection of the fatal conceit of central planners who cannot understand how something as complicated as an insurance marketplace can work. So what I'd like to do during my time is walk you through a very chaotic period in the ACA's birth that I think typifies the sorts of errors that were made. The very first item I like to talk about is a promise that you've no doubt heard. Everyone has insurance and they tend to like it. Before the ACA was enacted, polls were done that showed that roughly 85% of Americans who were insured were happy with their insurance. Um, this is not an accident. Unless you were older or sicker, insurance generally worked for you because you didn't really use it. It was, a guarded, it was guarding against a certain type of risk. So when the ACA was being debated, the president had a dilemma. He understood that to help poor people, help sicker people, he would have to make insurance more expensive for others. In fact, many policies people like would be eliminated. So he tried to un uh, unravel this tension with a simple promise. If you like your insurance, you can keep your insurance. This promise wasn't just um, uh, misleading, but I think it created a perverse constitutional culture. And what I mean by that? The promise of the ACA was that this law can succeed without any sacrifice, that people would not have to alter what they already have. This was frankly impossible, because the only way to provide an expansion of coverage was to make it more expensive for others. This is, this is traditional spread the wealth economics. But because the president repeated this promise over and over again, people felt this false sense of complacency, that the ACA could operate without any conceivable burdens on anyone. And this was simply a myth. So what happened throughout 2010, 2011, 2012, the Obama administration released regulation after regulation, making it harder to keep your plan. 
making it harder to grandfather your plan. Again, this was not an accident. The law was meant to get people off these cheap plans and pay more to the system. But then what happened? In the fall of 2013, as millions of plans were being canceled, the president said, we can't have this. The promise he made had proved to be false. So he unleashed the first of many executive actions. This was known as the so-called administrative fix, which I mean, people don't think much about. What the administrative fix basically said was, if you're an insurance company, we will let you sell a plan that is not compliant with Obamacare. Even though under the individual mandate, these plans are void, we will let you sell them. This was a wholesale suspension of the ACA, a wholesale suspension of the law, the key component of the mandate. Not only that, the government actually said to states, hey, state insurance commissioners, even if you've already said these plans are void, we will look the other way. HHS will not enforce the mandates against the states or the insurance companies. As a result, millions of people whose plans were voided by the ACA were allowed to keep them. And you may say, wow, Josh, this is great, right? People can keep their plans, keeping his promise. This is wrong. The reason why this is wrong is, first of all, it's illegal. The president can't simply suspend the law. But more importantly, it perpetuates this misperception that we can have this sort of national health reform without any sort of sacrifice. So people are still laboring under the illusions that this law can operate without any burdens to them. Another attribute, something called the Cadillac tax. This would have been a 40% excise tax on insurance policies that are very generous. The purpose of this law was very, very clear. It was to get people off their employer-provided plans and into the Obamacare exchanges. The more people who join the Obamacare exchanges, the more diverse they'll be and the more stable they'll be. Did you think this was actually going to go into effect? Of course not. Why? Unions, labor unions, their biggest form of compensation is through health insurance. As soon as the various pieces of litigation wound down with King v. Burwell, the unions started saying, hey, we got to get rid of this Cadillac tax because this is going to hurt our members. Again, a measure designed to actually make the law function could not operate because people were not willing or interested in sacrificing. So what happened? A two-year delay in the Cadillac tax, it will never go into effect. I'll give you another one. The law was meant to be, if you sign up for insurance in a specific period of time, it would control things, right? Imagine if you could sign up for insurance on your way to the hospital. You go in the ambulance, log on to your iPhone, and sign up. Who would ever buy insurance in advance? No one. But what did the Obama administration do? For the past three years, basically anyone who wants to sign up for insurance late could do it. They would give you a special enrollment period, show hardship, no documentation required. My favorite one, if you had a utility disconnect, they would give you a special enrollment period. If you had some unspecified hardship and you called HHS, they would give you an enrollment. We don't even know how many people got these enrollments. And economists in the room, what do you think happened? People who signed up late use much more care. The people who signed up late use almost twice as much care and are putting the insurance companies out of a profit. Now, none of this is surprising. Why? Again, we're in a high auditorium. People behave rationally. And if you create this system where you cannot discriminate against price in any respect, and they can sign up any time, people are not going to use it in the manner it was designed. So again, the distortions in the marketplace came not from you know, uh, Ted Cruz or anyone else, but came from the law itself.
Socialist experiments have failed no matter when and where they have been tried. Instead of tranquility and prosperity, they have resulted in strife and impoverishment. Yet socialism keeps on reappearing, albeit in different guises, throughout the world. Lita Cosmides is a professor in the Department of Psychological and Brain Sciences at UC Santa Barbara. At a Cato Institute event in September, Cosmides discussed how cooperation and sharing among groups evolves into the idea of socialism. There's a very basic political divide. In fact, I heard it on C-SPAN last week. People ask, are humans basically good or basically bad? Um, liberals often say, we're basically good. We're natural socialists who enjoy sharing and just corrupted by a culture of private property and capitalism. Uh, conservatives often say, we're basically bad. We're self-interested, selfish, exploitive, and we need culture to rein in those motives. So which is true? Is human nature basically good or basically bad? I would say neither. Um, that for an evolutionary psychologist like me, it's, it's not a scientifically coherent uh, question. And here's why. From my strange point of view, the human brain is a computational system that's produced by evolution. It's composed of many different programs that are evolved adaptations. Each of these evolved programs is designed to execute its functions when it detects cues that the problem that it evolved to solve is at hand. And these programs do lots of different things from causing family love and aggression to cooperation and theft. They, they do different things. So human nature, to me, is a collection of reliably developing species-typical information processing adaptations. From this point of view, we're not basically good or bad. Basically, we're collections of adaptations that execute their functions, or adaptation executors. From this view, the mind, the mind is not a blank slate or a, a content-free copying machine. It contains a lot of functionally specialized programs, each well-engineered for solving a different adaptive problem, mating, hunting, cooperating groups, problems, faced, problems in survival and, and reproduction faced by our hunter-gatherer ancestors. Those problems evolved to navigate a small-scale social world. The hunter-gatherers from whom we're descended lived in small, face-to-face -face, um, bands, semi-nomadic ones, of anywhere from 50 to 200 people, men, women, and children included, uh, many of whom were family, friends, neighbors, people they knew. Um, people they knew, whose character they knew, and who, where they knew what they were doing. They could monitor their behavior. Now, our mind is very well designed for understanding that vanished world, obviously not markets in which we cooperate, mostly indirectly, with millions of anonymous strangers. So when we're seeing markets, when we're seeing the modern world, we're seeing it through the eyes of our ancestors, through a, a, a brain that was designed uh, by a world that doesn't exist anymore. Now, importantly, a lot of these evolved programs are content-rich and, and domain-specific in, in a way that used to be called by philosophers as which you could think of as innate ideas in them. Like expert systems in artificial intelligence, they're equipped with concepts and inferences that apply in one domain, uh, but not in others. These organize our experiences, and, and actually, they don't constrain what we do. Without them, we would learn nothing. They generate particular inferences, inject recurrent concepts and motivations into our mental life. They give us our passions and motivations, cause us to think certain very specific thoughts, make certain ideas, feelings, and reactions seem reasonable, interesting, and memorable. Consequently, they pay a, play a key role in shaping human culture and society. Um, knowing the structure of them is necessary for understanding why some ideas spread very easily from mind to mind and others don't. 
and why some institutions succeed and others fail. So the key point I want to make today for understanding socialism and human nature is that several different evolved programs regulate cooperation and sharing. And so just to start out, I want to ask, well, was Karl Marx right about collective action in hunter-gatherers? If you remember, what Karl Marx thought was he believed that existing hunter-gatherers, data was coming from anthropologists going to different parts of the world, colonial parts of the world, and coming back to Europe. Um, and by extension, our ancestors, he believed that they lived in a, a state of primitive communism where all labor was accomplished through collective action and sharing was governed by the decision rule from each according to his ability to each according to his need. He thought that the overthrow of capitalism would bring forth an economically advanced society with similar properties. All you need to do is abolish private property and all labor will once again be accomplished through collective action. And because the mind reflects the material conditions of existence, I'm not exactly sure what's meant by that, but the hunter-gatherer communal sharing role is going to emerge once again and dominate social life. And as you know, based on his theory, 20th century institutions and laws governing property, labor, trade, the legitimacy of consent and dissent were changed all across the planet with a big impact on the lives of the people in those countries, but not at all the utopian ones that he had hoped for. So was he right? It was his view of hunter-gatherer labor and sharing rules correct? And if not, what cognitive programs generating cooperation did the selection pressures endemic to hunter-gatherer life build? Well, there's been many, many studies of, of existing hunter-gatherers and converging evidence from paleoanthropology. And my, one of my favorites is this classic study by, um, by Hilly Kaplan, Hillard Kaplan and Kim Hill on food sharing among at Ache for, foragers in Paraguay. And what they find, and this is what basically everybody who studies hunter-gatherers finds, is that hunter-gatherers are, yes, they're cooperative, but it's not an orgy of indiscriminate cooperation. Um, there are several alternative sharing rules, even within the same cultural group, for different kinds of goods and resources. And one of the important triggers for alternative sharing rules is perception of variance due to luck uh, versus effort. So what do I mean by triggered? Well, some cultural patterns are evoked, not not merely transmitted. So hunting is a risky business. Um, you, on four out of 10 hunts, you'll come back with nothing, even when you're trying really hard. It, the variance in success is very high, and it's mostly due to luck, not skill as a hunter. With, with, with meat, with hunted foods, what, what hunter-gatherers mostly do is they pull the risk. They pull this risk. There's up to band level sharing to deal with these frequent reversal of fortunes. I come back with nothing today, you share with me. You come back with nothing tomorrow, I share with you. I'm storing food in the form of a social obligation with other people. And this is closest to the sharing rule from each according to his ability to each according to his need. It may be what the anthropologists were noting when the anthropologists from whom he was getting his information were noting. I don't know. Other foods, like gathered foods, um, when, when you're gathering uh, nuts, when you're gathering plant foods. There, the variance in foraging success this is, is low, and the variance is mostly due to effort. Did you go out? Did you try? Did you forage today? Those foods are shared primarily within the family and via reciprocation with particular partners. And then other goods are shared by, by reciprocation or trade, even with people in other, other bands.
State constitutions are a relatively untapped resource for protecting liberty, so says Clint Bullock, an associate justice of the Arizona Supreme Court. He says state constitutions aren't well understood, but the rules for bringing suit on behalf of specific rights is much easier, and standing is much easier to establish. Bullock spoke at the Cato Institute's Constitution Day event in September. Today we celebrate two days prematurely, the 229th anniversary of the signing of the most magnificent National Freedom Charter ever created. And we do so appropriately enough in an institution dedicated to the eternal perseverance of the Constitution and the principles on which it is based. And yet when we speak of the Constitution, no matter how much we properly revere it, we often overstate its intended importance in the American rule of law. For in our federal system, we have not one constitution, but 51 constitutions. It is part of the masterpiece of federalism that each of us in the 50 states can look for the protection of our rights, not to one constitution, but to two. And in that regard, state constitutions were intended to be primary, not secondary. Indeed, the national constitution drew greatly from state constitutions, particularly in identifying individual rights that would be protected against the national government. It was not until the 14th Amendment that individuals could look to the national constitution to protect them against deprivations of freedom visited upon them by their own state or local governments. Even then, many important individual rights were protected either by state constitutions or not at all. And yet today, state constitutions are relegated to afterthought. Constitutional law classes rarely mention them. Litigators rarely invoke them. State courts often interpret them as if they were mere appendages of the United States Constitution. And ironically, despite their professed commitment to federalism, conservative and libertarian litigation groups have focused almost exclusively on the national constitution to the exclusion of state constitutions, except when they have no other choice. That emphasis is profoundly unfortunate for two reasons. First, it overlooks the vast untapped potential of state constitutions as bulwarks for freedom. Second, it concentrates resources in judicial terrain that likely will produce diminishing returns for freedom in the years to come. So even as we pause to celebrate the remarkable resiliency of our nation's constitutional charter, so should we look anew to state constitutions that were intended to provide the first line of defense against overreaching government. For freedom advocates, state constitutions provide significant advantages over their national counterpart. Indeed, if this talk had a subtitle, if it would be, if only, as in, if only the United States Constitution contained these features. Although the national constitution has many nifty qualities from a freedom perspective, many of which have unfortunately been winnowed away by federal courts, they pale in comparison with state constitutions. I call these superior features of state constitutions the fabulous five. Foremost among them is that all state constitutions provide protections of individual rights and constraints against government power that are completely unknown 
to the US Constitution. I will discuss some of those provisions later on, but among those that are common to many state constitutions are explicit rights to privacy, debt limits, and prohibitions against gifts of public funds. For freedom advocates, exploring state constitutions is like being a kid in a candy store. But like the proverbial unseen tree falling silently in the forest, the freedom provisions of state constitutions are equally silent when they are unlitigated. Second, many freedom provisions that are similar to provisions in the US Constitution are written more broadly. And even when such provisions are identical to the US Constitution, state courts are free to interpret them differently than the federal courts do, but only in one direction. State courts may apply state constitutional provisions as more protective of freedom than the federal courts protect similar provisions in the US Constitution, but not less. I call this the freedom ratchet. The US Constitution provides the floor beneath individual rights, while state constitutions can provide greater but not lesser protection. Third, state courts have the final word on state constitutional interpretation. In other words, if you prevail on a state constitutional issue, the, the other side has no recourse to the US Supreme Court, unless, of course, the state constitution itself violates the national constitution. That is reason enough for freedom advocates to always consider filing constitutional cases in state courts and to always assert independent state constitutional grounds when doing so. Fourth, state constitutions often provide greater access to the courts than does the national constitution, at least as interpreted by the US Supreme Court. For instance, many state constitutions do not contain case or controversy requirements. Perhaps most important, unlike federal courts, most state courts recognize taxpayer standing to challenge unconstitutional spending. Finally, state constitutions often are far more easily amended. Um, if you've ever aspired to constitutional authorship, I suggest you look at amending state constitutions rather than attempting the Sisyphean task of amending the US Constitution. Arizonans have added numerous freedom provisions to our Constitution in recent years, including a prohibition against racial preferences in government, employment, contracting, and education, the rights to healthcare autonomy and of terminally ill patients to use experimental drugs, and a provision authorizing the legislature or the people to forbid the use of state funds to implement federal laws or programs they believe exceed constitutional boundaries. We call that one the federalism shield. State constitutions, like the national constitution, were intended to protect individual rights and restrain government power. Their potential to do so is vast and largely unrealized, yet hardly unrealizable. My own epiphany about state constitutions occurred early in my career. Like most lawyers, I never took a course in state constitutional law and hadn't a clue about what treasures those mysterious documents contained but I was about to be schooled on them by, of all entities, the teachers' union, in what was to be the most important case of my young career. 
I went to law school in large part to advance educational freedom, especially through school vouchers, and was determined to defend voucher programs against inevitable legal challenges by those invested in the, in, in the status quo. Trouble was, there were no voucher programs to defend. That changed in 1990 with the enactment of the Milwaukee Parental Choice Program. Initially, it was a tiny program limited to 1% of the school district students who could use a fraction of their education funds as full payment of tuition in non-sectarian private schools. Well, we had been preparing for years for an attack of voucher programs under the Establishment Clause, but this didn't raise Establishment Clause issues because religious schools were not included. So the the uh, challengers had to look not to the U.S. Constitution, but to the Wisconsin Constitution for their line of attack. And we wondered, what would they be? We finally found out. Under the Wisconsin Constitution, they found three causes of action. The Educational Uniformity Clause, the so-called Public Purpose Doctrine, and the Private or Local Bill Clause which the challengers asserted the program violated because it was passed as part of the state budget rather than as a standalone bill. I had never heard of any of those provisions, and I had all of a couple of weeks to fathom and argue them. For the next two years, we battled over those provisions, winning in the trial court, losing in the court of appeals. The private or local bill clause in particular became the bane of my existence. Ultimately, in 1992, we prevailed in the Wisconsin Supreme Court by the resounding vote of four to three, which marked the start of a vibrant movement, national movement to expand educational opportunities to children who desperately needed them. But over the course of that grueling struggle, an odd thing happened. I fell in love with my bete noire, the private or local bill clause. Once I allowed myself to get past my adversarial disdain and see it in its natural splendor, I found the stuff of which libertarian dreams are made. A constitutional provision aimed at one of the most odious yet ubiquitous legislative practices, log rolling. Properly applied, the local or private bill clause contained in numerous state constitutions requires narrow interest bills to stand on their own and be voted upon separately in the light of day. No more bridges to nowhere. No more larded up appropriations bills. No more earmarks. If only the US Constitution contained such a provision. Since the end of the Second World War, we have been taught that the economy is one big machine that can be effectively regulated by economic experts and tuned by government agencies like the Federal Reserve Board. In Specialization in Trade, A Reintroduction to Economics, a new book published by the Cato Institute's Libertarianism.org project, Arnold Kling removes these historically narrow perspectives and inaccurate interpretations of economic events and provides new ways to think about issues like sustainability, financial instability, job creation, and inflation that make up this continually evolving system. You can find Specialization in Trade at Libertarianism.org and at online retailers nationwide. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next month.